This is an interview with Philip Lucas on 15th of June, 1979, at Faygate, Sussex. When the war started, I was, what was I, when the war started? See, I was 37, 38 when the war started. And, um, a certain age, you see, and they were only flying piston-engine fighters which, and um, Roland Beamon, Roland Beamon, was, we ran out of test pilots during the early stages of the war, uh, through a series of very unfortunate accidents, uh, not necessarily connected with testing aeroplanes, we had a series of fatal accidents, and I lost three pilots within a very short space of time, one of which we, Dick and Rennell, we had arranged an exchange basis during the Battle of Britain War, so we could get operational experience. And um, he went first and was attacked 43 squadron and was shot down, you see. And then another of our pilots was killed by a tail coming off a typhoon. Another one, uh, an engine stopped taking off and he had nowhere to go. He was either going into a row of houses or turning right and going into um, the Brooklands. Uh, the, the banking of the Brooklyn, he did that, and he, uh, he was killed. And uh, so we had a succession of serious accidents. And of course, in those days, the industry was very small. It is, I hope this is not boring, because it's not relative. Not good. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to show you how Indeed, we into it, yeah. you see. And we lost another pilot uh, before then, an unexplained accident, I reckon. And so we were very short. And because in the industry in those days, which was very small, uh, the maximum number of pilots that any one firm employed was three. You see, two or three. Mm. And uh, so when the war came along, um, most of us were at an age which we were beyond operational age. And in my case, I was caught up because I was on the reserve. <coughs> and they said, well, now look, uh, either you go back to flying or you become a station adjutant or something like that, you see. And in any case, you've got to go back and fly. Now, nine pleased me more than that. So I was one of the very lucky ones and was able to survive the war and, and fly the whole time. But by the time of the, by the end of the war, um, I pretty well had it so far as flying was concerned. And I, I gave it up. Now, during the Battle of Britain, when the pressure was on and the production was increasing all round, there was a desperate shortage of pilots. And <coughs> we just couldn't get the aircraft off test as they were coming off uh, to meet uh, the rapidly expanding squadrons. And so, and I, I think I'm right in saying uh, we were the first firm to, to um, employ um, RA pilots. In fact, I had to go to the member of personnel and say, look, either you let us have some service pilots or you won't get your aeroplanes. And they said, oh, well, yes, they took the point. 
and um, immediately posted us two pilots, one of which was Beaumont. We finished up with about 11 service pilots in our test team. But Beaumont was always outstanding. He was the best of the lot. And you would um, have been how old at this time? Me? Yes. Well, it must have terribly young. I think he was probably about, um, I don't know, I'm guessing now. Mm. So how old he is? Do you know how old he is? 58, so I can work oh. it out. Is it 58? Late 50s, anyway. Well, if he's 58... Because he'll be around about 20 then. He came to me in 1940, I think, mm. or 41, I think he came to me, 40 or 41. Mm. So he was about 20, I think. Yes. Young, he's a typical, I wouldn't say he was a pilot officer prune, but he was a very young pilot officer, but he wasn't pilot officer prune at all. Mm. And I had quite a lot, he was by far the best of the lot. And, um, and, um, I got him started on on development work, but he was only on six months attachment, you see. But he came to us just at a time when we were deep in trouble with the typhoons. And uh, I managed to get him posted to the first, or one of the first, Typhoon squadrons, and this was a marvellous arrangement because he'd been flying with us and knew the typhoon inside out, and he was as keen as we were to get the thing to go, and therefore he he, he contributed enormous amount to the introduction of the typhoon into the service, and that's how he came into it. Well, then he finished his tour of duty. And he went back, he finished with us six months, mm -hmm. went back to operations. And then when he'd finished, I asked if he could come back again, which he did. So he came for a second tour with me, you see. And um, it was at that time we began to run into all of various compressibility problems. And um, we were then also doing the Tempest, and I got him posted the first Tempest wing. So it was a marvellous arrangement because, um, you know, if the squadron uh, ran short or something, he didn't ring me up, he rang up Joe Bloggs in the stores and said, Joe, look, we want a hydraulic pump, can you let us have one? You see, and he got it. If he'd come to uh, the, the firm officially or the ministry, it would have been six months before he got it. Mm -hmm. But he was a wonderful chap, tremendously, a very brave and enthusiastic fellow, and I had the greatest admiration for him. And, um, and then, of course, uh, I... We then literally ran out of pilots, and I got permission for him to come back to us on a permanent basis. And I was going to make him my number, well, Bill Humber was my number one, he'd have been uh, backing up him. And then he was shot down. I flew out to Germany and saw him in right about in the forward area and said, look, would you like to come back? This is Beaumont. This is Beaumont. Yeah. Mm. And uh, he said, look, I've only got three or four more operational jobs to do and then i got to go on operational rest. I'd like to think about it. And uh, damn me, he was shot down the next day. <laughs> and then, of course, the war came to an end and he was flown home with all the other prisoners of war. And, of course, we had no job to offer. But Petter rang me up. You remember Petter? Mm -hmm. He rang me up and said, Look, Philip, 
We've got the Canberra coming along. I've got to get a, a good test pilot. Can you recommend anybody? And, uh, you know, I just said, yes, I've got the trap foil. At the time, we'd given him a temporary job at Gloucester's, which he wasn't very happy at, and he went to Haverland's. Anyhow, Petter was jolly glad to have him, and he turned out he, he'd done him a wonderful job of work. And that's how we got to know each other. Yes, yes. But of course, he wasn't with us the whole time yeah. when we mm. began to run into compressibility problems. Mm. So that's how Beaumont came into it, mm. you see. Mm. Right, well now, how did we run into compressibility problems? We first ran into compressibility on the tornado. The tornado, um, the uh, typhoon, and the tornado were designed to a specification which was drawn up before the war. Uh, I can't remember the specification number. I could find it for you. It will be in there. You've got it, yes. probably. Mm -hmm. uh, and one prototype was to have the Rolls-Royce Vulture engine, which was a couple of um, Peregrine engines. One on a V engine on top. Mm -hmm. It was an X engine, mm -hmm. and the other was a Sabre. Both completely untried engines. And but we first flew the Tornado. Uh, I got the date down on mm -hmm. 6th of December 1939. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and we had the most awful trouble with the engines. Not the uh, so much the airframe. You always have problems with the airframes, but nothing terribly serious then. But one belly full of engine troubles. Um, pistons breaking, conrods going, um, oil frothing, uh, oil circulation problems, we mm. put it that way. And um, And um, during the course of our flight testing, where we began to work up to full throttle level speeds, um, we suddenly found that at altitude, we got a sudden change of trim, quite sudden change of trim, quite low indicated speeds. But we got this sudden change of trim which we couldn't understand. I mean, we'd be flying along with the aircraft perfectly stable, and then suddenly you you get a change of trim like that. Pitch up. Pitch up. Mm. Sudden change in pitch up, and with vibration. And we didn't know what it was at all. And so we tufted the whole of the inner fuselage and the bottom thing. It incidentally had an enormous great radiator path underneath the fuselage, uh, rather like the hurricane, only much bigger. Mm -hmm. And we found that by photograph photographing the tufts in flight, that uh, at the point when we suddenly got this change of trim and vibration, the tufts all around the, uh, the uh, wing fillets and the trailing edge of the radiators all pointed in the opposite direction. Some went off forward, some went sideways, some went up, mm. some went down. And uh, this, of course, was taken up and investigated now both by aerodynamics people and the NPL and Farnborough. And it was 
Theron put down to compressibility. Nobody thought of supersonic flying, you know, in those days. It wasn't such a thing. You You'd heard of this phenomenon, presumably, had you, of compressibility? We'd heard of... I can't remember whether we had. It was first, certainly the first experience that anybody had had in England. It wasn't dangerous at all. It was simply a sudden change in trim accompanied by vibration and instability. And it was found that this and it was found that it was due to local velocity where through interference where the radiator uh, and the bottom fillet of the airplane caused interference. It accelerated the as the eyes displaced around the airplanes you're going, you get local uh, local velocities mm. which were in fact uh, reaching the speed of sound, mm, mm. and that was then called compressibility. Yes. You said just now that it, it, it was a pitch-up. I mean, was this particular um, phenomenon round by the radiator and so mm -hmm. on, causing the centre of pressure to move forward and therefore pitching you That's up? That's right. Yes. 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 Because a sudden pitch-up. Because the other is... It reflected the root of the wing. Yes. You see. Yes. You see. And it's very, I'm looking through all my old photographs, and I've been terribly careless with photographs. Mm. I didn't realize the importance. We didn't realize, really, we were making history. We, oh, we were only concerned with fighting the war. And I have a photograph which was taken by um, one of our best test pilots, a fellow named Dick Rennell, who was killed, unfortunately. And he took it with his own Leica, flew by flying underneath and photographing these tufts. And I have the photograph somewhere, which is uh, quite interesting. Mm. And that was the first indication we had that there was some compressibility problem. And um, by altering the shape of the whole radiator fairing and the fillet of the wing, we overcame it. But the problems of the engine were so great, and don't forget, at that time the Manchester was flying with the Vulture. We were the only two flying with it, mm. the Vulture and the Tornado. And uh, there was a very uh, famous meeting at Langley where all the top people were, including Sidney Cam, Lord Hives, or Mr. Hives then, who was managing director of Rose, and people like myself, of course, called down the technical people. And it was decided that the vulture should be scrapped because it just didn't give the power. It never gave the power in mm. its top supercharger. And they, it, was, it was such that to get it right, it would have meant a complete redesign of the engine. And there just wasn't time. Mm. Mm. And so Chadwick was scrapped that on the tornado, although the tornado had gone into production mm. at, at Eden in Yorkshire, and the first the one or two flown, I went up there and flew the first production ones, the whole lot was scrapped. What was the design um, maximum power rating of the Vulture? Was it considerably higher than the Merlin, presumably? Oh yes, mm. uh, it was meant to be a, in the neighbourhood of 2,000 horsepower. Mm. Both the same and the Vulture mm. were supposed to give about that horsepower. It was roughly 80% um, more mm. powerful. 
and it was designed to go into a, a successor to the Hurricane and the Spitfire. Mm. And they didn't get that power reliably until the Griffin, really, did they, at the end of the war? On the engines, or perhaps I'm jumping ahead. No, you're jumping a bit yes, there. Yes, yes. You're jumping a bit there. Um, the Sabre, so then they went on with the Typhoon, mm. with the Sabre engine. Well now, um, that airplane, we had very serious compressibility trouble on that one, but we didn't know about it, you see. And it was a matter of very considerable embarrassment to me that we didn't run into compressibility problems until quite a few squadrons had been formed. And by that time, everybody was beginning to run into compressibility problems, uh, particularly the Americans on the Lightning. Mm. And you no doubt have found that. I've talked to some XP-38 pilots recently. Yes. Mm. Um, now, the reason why we didn't discover this until the aircraft had been cleared to go into squadron service was because nobody knew anything about compressibility. Certainly supersonics were only a gleam in people's eyes. And to prove the airplanes, the companies had to uh, go entirely while we were doing speed tests on indicated speeds. When we did our diving tests, we were fairly, we were told what the maximum diving speed was and um, uh, we had to go 10% over the approved maximum diving speed of the aeroplane. And uh, this on the Typhoon was round about 500 indicated, which was very high speed in those days, mm. indicated, I'm not mm. talking about mm. true speed. Now to get 500 indicated was a pretty, a frightening thing because naturally with prototypes you had to increase your speed very very carefully you'd start your diving test you start to a certain height you go up to you know was i'm only i, I can't quite exactly but say you start at 450 and then you would look at the machine very carefully you would go up to 460 470 480 490 500 you see mm -hmm. and then we had to go over 10 percent over there so we're up to 550 you see now to be able to get those indicated speeds you could only do it by starting your dive from comparatively low altitudes i mean right. we start about twenty thousand feet by the time we got up to 500, we were down to 8,000 feet, you see, mm. and uh, we had no problem there. We got through all our diving tests and the machine behaved extremely well. It didn't uh, reach the performance it was supposed to have. This was mainly due to, again, the engine not giving the power it was designed originally to have, but we ran into no trouble at all. And it wasn't until one day and I wish I could fill in the dates, when Napier's, having opened a flight test section, when we started flying with the Sabre engine, we were the first people to fly, start flying with the engine. So we started with a prototype airframe and a prototype engine, mm -hmm. and a very, very unreliable engine. And uh, 
unlike Hucknall or Rolls-Royce, who had a, a well-developed flight test section, Napiers had nothing. We had to do it all. Uh, but there was uh, under pressure, they started flight test section at Luton, under a fellow named Cowdrey. And they had a pilot called Bonner, I think, who was a pilot on loan for the RAF to them, I think. Well, he he wasn't doing airframe, he was doing engine development work, so they had a pretty clear-cut engine test program, what do you do? And one evening, now this is quite true, one evening, uh, I think he had a date, and he was in a hurry to get back, and he was flying about 30,000 feet, and he, I suppose he looked at his watch and he thought, I've got to meet this girl, you see. And he did a half roll at about 30,000 feet, and so dived out of it. And when he got to about 15,000 feet, the thing took a header, took a nose straight down to the ground. He couldn't pull out of it. Until he got down to about 8,000 feet, when he suddenly found he, he could pull out of the dive. Well, he, he rang me in a pretty incoherent way the next morning and said, you know, this expense, his controls had jammed. Well, you know, while well, I was inside, I said, nonsense, you see. So I went over there and I flew the machine and um, I did not what he did, but you know, there was no need to. But not from that altitude? No. You see, I couldn't find anything wrong with the machine, nor could the inspector find anything wrong with the machine at all. So we thought that probably uh, he had trimmed the aircraft into a dive, you see, and then when he tried to pull it out, having trimmed himself into a dive, he was in such a state of dither, because he wasn't a trained test pilot, you see, he couldn't pull out a dive. And we just put it out of that. Well, then the next incident, and that was that, mm. the next incident, and we didn't do anything about it. Mm. The next incident was number one squadron went operational at Atkinton. I might be able to find the date of this. Mm -hmm. And after a certain period of time of working up, they were allowed, they went operational. This was a big day for any squadron to be declared operational. And the very first day, this is absolutely true, the very first day, they went operational. The first two ME 210s, I think. The, the 110s had in the Battle of Britain, weren't they? And it was the first two 10s came over, and they scrambled two typhoons. And these chaps overhauled these two 10s at about 28,000 feet, much to the, their surprise. And they got in their tails and they shot them down. And they followed them down, you see, followed them down in the dive frequently, and they both suddenly found themselves, for some unknown reason, round about eight to nine thousand feet. Well, the moment I heard that they got this, shot these two aeroplanes down, we were very delighted to hear that it's been done. I got in a hike and I flew up to Ackington. And, and saw them, and they were, I think we threw an enormous party that night. And um, talking to the two pilots, 
they, they could not quite understand. They were very young kids, all these kids, you see. It came out, you see, that they got into this dive and they didn't get out until they thought they hadn't a clue why. They didn't intend going down that far? No, no. But they couldn't pull out the dive. But it didn't matter in the slightest, you see. They shot these two things down. This is a great thing to happen. And um, so, when I got back, oh, I naturally discussed it with this thing. We thought, well, there's something pretty odd happening here, you see. And uh, so we, okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. we started doing dives ourselves, starting at different speeds and different altitudes, and damn me, we ran into it. And we had a big compressibility problem on our hands. Well, now, you know, all these things happened together. The Americans were beginning to run into it. I still don't think that anybody else, because the Spitfire, which is a very clean aeroplane from the start, never had compressibility problems. But still not talking about supersonic flying. Mm. We didn't, uh, they never experienced supersonic troubles. Nor did the Hurricane, because the drag was so high, couldn't get up to the speeds where they arrived as supersonic. And of course, um, but there was never any damage. You know, we had a lot of tails off typhoons. Mm. It was nothing to do with um, compressibility. Mm. I'll talk about that another later on, if mm. it would interest mm. you. But we're talking about compressibility now. None of these troubles which we had on the typhoon airframe were due to compressibility. It was due entirely to the fact it had a very thick wing section. I don't, I've forgotten now what it was, but it was uh, something like 16%. It was thicker than the Spitfires? Oh, much thicker. The mm. thickness chord ratio mm. was much thicker than the Hurricane. It was thicker than the Hurricane. Oh, really? Yes. Thicker than the Hurricane. The thickness chord ratio. Was this because of the extra size of the armament or something? Well, um, it was designed, you see. Um, again, you've got to bear in mind that people didn't know anything about it. Supersonics were beyond the wildest dreams. Uh, Supermarines had a great deal more experience than Hawkers did in designing high-speed wings. Um, stressed in wings, monocoque fuselages, and so on and so forth. And therefore, and in particularly in the case of the Hurricane, if we were to compete, I, I'm afraid I'm wondering a bit here. No, no, I, I'm just checking the sound level. Don't worry, I'm, I'm fascinated. Carry on. Yes. Uh, well, I, I'm drifting a bit, but I think I have to go back a bit mm. now. I have to go back to the Hurricane and the Spitfire. Mm -hmm. Now, the Hurricane Spitfire specification came out in 1935, 34, 1934 I think it was, and it called for a speed of no more than 275 miles an hour. And the it dropped that Germany was rearming, rearming and politically the go-ahead was given for the RAF to start expanding. So the pressure was on to get these aeroplanes out. Now, we knew 
the Supermarines had far more experience than we did uh, in designing high-speed airplanes through their Schneider Trophy experience. We had developed a line of airplanes in the form of the Hart series biplanes and Hawker Ferry single-seaters, which were very practical airplanes for that period of time when nobody thought about war. They were tubular construction with wooden combings, fabric covered, rugged, wide undercarriages, requiring very little maintenance, very easy to repair. And I'm not exaggerating, I would say that 80% of the Air Force was armed with Hawker aeroplanes. Hearts, mm. Heinz, and the ho all the variants of the Hearts mm. there. And when the specification came out for this interceptor fighter, calling for 275 miles an hour, uh, we knew that um, provided we could handsomely beat the specification requirement, which is only 275, mm. um, well, we had a good chance of winning the competition. And, um, and for that reason, we got our aeroplane flying first. And by the time we got the prototype up to Marshall, which was the then Boston, of course, they were so delighted with the pressure, the political pressure was on them mm. to get these aeroplanes going. It was such that... Um, they gave an immediate order. And then about six months afterwards, when the Supermarine went up there, they found it was about 50 miles an hour faster than Hurricane. Then there was the most tremendous pressure. Of course, they, what do we order the Hurricane for? Here's an airplane, marvellous airplane, see, 50 miles an hour faster. Let's change it. Let's scrap the Hurricane and go for speed. Thank God they didn't. Um, I was very much involved at the time, and of course we fought like hell, and thank God common sense prevailed, uh, because the numbers were such that it would have been impossible for us to have even just picked up the drawing and got into production, because supermarines were having great difficulty in producing the Spitfire in the numbers that were required within the necessary time scale. And the answer to that is, of course, the Hurricane was fast enough for the Battle of Britain. And we lost between about 400 Hurricanes. The Hurricane was the only modern fighter available to go to France when war broke out. About 400 Hurricanes were lost in France, mostly on the ground, before we pulled out of France. And yet, when the Battle of Britain started, a matter of four months later, 80% of the Royal Air Force was equipped with Hurricane aircraft. Fantastic. Mm. So, had they scrapped the Hurricane and only gone for the Spitfire, you see, we wouldn't have won the Battle of Britain. But anyhow, we, had, we merely perpetuated the, roughly the method of design in the Typhoon, we still had a very thick wing. And uh, this is why we ran into compressibility troubles. 
But uh, the way we commented that was quickly um, going around the squadron that involved myself and uh, the other pilots, you know, educating the chaps, you know, to, to be very careful if they got into compressibility not to trim themselves out of a dive, which was a transnational thing, otherwise they'd come out and damn it, possibly lose their wings. Um, and, uh, but just at that time, uh, the Battle of Britain was over, so the whole emphasis on the war switched from defence to attack. And in the instead of the operational heights going up and up and up and up, which they were, they came down and down and down and down. And of course, the typhoon, because, and indeed the hurricane, because of its thick, thickness chord ratio, was a most wonderful ground attack aeroplane. Mm because it had a very low stalling speed mm -hmm. and maximum load. Mm -hmm. It could nip in and out of 1,500 yards. 1,500 yards was more or less the standard length of strip, which the planners have arranged for the bulldozers, the Summerfield tracking, and all that goes with it, you see. And uh, we had pilots, you know, with only about, I don't know, nine months, years training, going fully operational on bombing uh, low attack missions on typhoons, carried, pulling, uh, taking off within 1500 yards, full load and landing full load, which you couldn't have done on a Spitfire. Mm. Mm. So, um, you see, it was very fortunate at the time, but it did introduce compressibility to trouble. And this is why we never discovered it during our early prototype, because as you know, the speed of sound uh, falls as the density there increases. Mm. I can't give you the exact case, and I was hoping there was Charlie Darwin to be there. As it decreases, you mean the higher you go, it falls, doesn't it? The higher they go, the, yes, the, I'm sorry, the, 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 the higher, higher you go, the lower, right. the lower it comes. That's right, yes. yes. Mm. And that is why we didn't, because yes. we only thought of indicated speeds mm. then. Mm. To get the indicated speeds, we had to finish our dives, you know, within a thousand feet of the ground. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but had we started them at very high altitude, we'd have run into it. Mm. They mm. weren't discovered until quite a long time after the squad was going to service. Yeah. And that was that. Now, when the, the typhoon was superseded by the, the uh, Tempest, mm -hmm. and the Tempest had a much thinner wing, and although you could get into, you could, you could get into compressibility, it was very difficult, and nobody ever did in squadron service, that I know. You had to do it at quite high altitude. Hmm? You had to do it at quite high altitude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the Tempest was a magnificent mm -hmm. But was it used very much in a high-altitude interceptor role? I mean, it was mainly used chasing doodlebugs, wasn't it? Tempest? The Tempest, yes. The Tempest was designed as a high-altitude fighter. Mm. <coughs> and the main reason why the Tempest made its name, and indeed the Typhoon, mm. was because, uh, the, the, as I told you before, the operational requirements were operational heights of around 8,000 feet, mm -hmm. as opposed to about 30,000 feet. And by that time, there were thousands of Spitfires available, all sorts of mark numbers, mm -hmm. from, you know, the 
the spit five, six, seven, eight, nine, you mm. name the number, and they went up to spit 24, I like it was. Mm. Mm. And uh, they did all the top cover fighting. Mm. Mm. So you didn't really design the problem out of the Tempest, you just learned no, to... No, no, we didn't design it out. Mm. There was nothing you could do. Mm. You would have, uh, we, did, we did design the problem out by, with the Tempest, by putting in thinner wings. Mm. Mm. But then when you ran into the problem with the Tempest... Yes, but I, I don't remember, I, I, I don't think anybody really ran into it. I, I think on tests mm. you could produce it, but I don't think anybody in the squadron ran mm. into it. Mm. Not, not by me within memory, mm. to my knowledge. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem like it was in the Typhoon. Yeah. Because it was, it was all coming in there. I mean, Hal Penrose told me the other day that, that uh, with the Welkin, oh, well, um, you yeah. know, he had a lot of tucking under. This is the narrowest squeak I ever had in my life. Really? You know there were only three Welkins built. Yeah. And and uh, all three crashed and I crashed one for them. Really? Yes. Was that anything to do with compressibility Nothing. or something? Nothing at all. But it had it. Very yeah. much lower mm. speed than the Typhoon. It is impossible. Mm. Absolutely. It was designed as a high altitude fighter. And it was utterly useless. Mm, mm. But I had I uh, we, we were having great trouble at the time uh, with heavy ailerons, and I remember I did it boil. No, not a bit. And I remember I flew down to Boscombe Down, and I had lunch with a chap named Any Rowe, who at that time was the chief technical officer at Boscombe Down. And he said, you know, Philip, we've got an airplane here called the Welkin, which was we knew about. And he said, they have got a most ingenious uh, aileron control called a spring tab. And he said, I think you ought to fly it because it might be able to help you with your problems. I said, yes, yeah, sure, right, well, where can I fly? Oh, he said, well, I might be able to fly this afternoon. And um, sure enough, the airplane was there, available. So off I went. And damn me, I hadn't been in the air for about, oh, I think about a quarter of an hour. I was climbing up when my port engine stopped. In fact, it caught fire. I didn't know it but it did. started uh, vibrating violently and belching out smoke. And so I, I'd never been there. I mean, I'd, I had no time to handle it or anything like that. I was really climbing up to do a bit of handling. And uh, so I called up Boscombe and told them I got an engine out and I was coming back. Well, as luck would have it, they were then building the, uh, the concrete runway. And it meant landing crosswind on the grass on the short distance aerodrome. And, and I said, right, uh, can you divert me to somewhere else? There's a long runway. And they diverted me to Chilburton, which hadn't been opened. They'd just got the runway there. And but then, uh, having got that sorted out, I said, well, I, I, better, I spent a bit of time trying to get used to the airplane, finding out what the story was. 
and I put the arnicate down and didn't go down. And uh, so I used the emergency, which was went up by gravity and locked. Mm. Then I found I had no instruments. And then I tried to put the flaps down, the flaps didn't come down. And I found all the hydraulics had gone. So I was very badly placed and, um, uh, you know, having to land this thing without brakes, no brakes, no flaps, on an airplane I'd never flown before. No instruments. Being and so I made a wide pass at Chilburton, looking over my left wing, found the whole port wing on fire. <sighs> I didn't wait, I just stuffed it on the ground and went charging through, hitting like that. And unfortunately it didn't turn over. By the time I got out, the port wing and the engine fell off. That was the third. So there weren't any more. And the other, oh no, that was the second, I'm sorry. Mm. The first one, this same thing, it all happened the same thing. Mm. The first one happened in the middle of a cloud, and mm. the pilot got out. And the second one was me, and the third one was so frightened, having heard of what happened first to he didn't wait for anything, he simply shoved it down, as, no he didn't, he shoved it down on a solitary plane, knocked himself out, but there was an army pilot in an Auster flying along, saw him go down, landed alongside him, yanked him up, put him in the airplane, flew him back to Boston Dye, and he was in hospital within about 20 minutes. Yeah. That was the story of the three Wilkins. Yeah, yeah. But that wasn't my job, anyhow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just briefly ask him, your flying experience covered a tremendous um, range of development. I mean, you were flying, what, in the late 20s, early 30s? Yes. Well, I was about to meet in 1928, mm -hmm. I, when I first started testing. Yes. And did you ever get to fly any jets at the end of the war? Or? Well, I did. I, I simply flew them, you know, mm. get the type in my logbook. I wanted to see what they were like, mm. but I'd given up flying them. Mm. Mm. I hadn't given it up, but I mean, uh, I didn't, I only used um, uh, liaison aircraft, mm. I didn't do any professional flying mm. after the war. I, I, you know, I'd had a pretty good base before. Is, is there any um, sort of general impression you had of the tremendous change over that period from, from the little biplanes right through to the jet? Um, a sort of personal impression not necessarily to do with flying, but with the state of technology, or um, could you summarise the great changes you experienced in that long career? Well, of course, you've got to remember that um, there was a war, mm. and um, the pressure on getting new projects out was enormous. and. And equally so, there was tremendous pressure to avoid change. Because to get an aeroplane under wartime conditions, you couldn't do it now, of course, but under wartime conditions, to design it, flight develop it, get flight approval, get it into the squadrons, to get the squadrons operational, it was over a certain length period of time. Therefore, you couldn't change much. All you could do was to get the aeroplane, which in your opinion was operationally acceptable, and let it go at that. Mm -hmm. um, although there may be, have been many, many things one would like to have done, mm 
time just wouldn't align mm. because you were generally developing either an airplane or weapon system for a particular operation. Mm. And that time couldn't be changed mm. and you had to do the best you could. The ba the, there were three big changes during the war, of course. We started off with the biplanes and the gladiator was the last of that generation of airplanes, the fastest and the best, shall we say, of the biplane fighters. We then came to the Hurricane Spitfire era, which after all survived the whole war. And they, with typhoon tempests, which were really developments of the Hurricane, they were different airplanes, but they were very virtually the same sort of aeroplane, uh, followed by the jet. Mm, mm. And I should say that the most dramatic change, of course, was the introduction of the jet. And, of course, the, with, with the general state of the knowledge, uh, developments since then. I mean, compare the vampire and the meteor with the tornado and the F4, I mean, as big a gap as that, mm -hmm. enormous, isn't it? Well, what was the favourite aeroplane, the nicest one you flew, of all the different types? I don't, I think it's almost impossible to say, mm. almost impossible to say, because um, you get very fond of an aeroplane, you know, very fond of an aeroplane, and operational pilots are tremendously loyal. I mean, you, uh, with the bombers, for instance, a good, a good example was the, um, what was the shot, that awful crew? The Sterling. The Sterling. Mm. You go and ask a Sterling crew, whether, which they'd rather fly, Sterling on a Lancaster. They say Sterling every time, marvellous airplane, you see. Mm. This mm. is a wonderful thing. Uh, you go to a Hurricane Squadron and think, marvellous, oh yes, Hurricane's the best airplane in the world. You go to Spitfire Pilots and you go, whoa, Hurricane like this, well, I'm faster, Hurricane, much better airplane. Mm, and yeah. I, I think it's very difficult yeah, to say yeah. which is the best airplane. Mm. I can think of airplanes which I enjoyed flying first. Uh, I enjoyed flying the Hawker Fury. It was a lovely little airplane. Lovely looker. Mm. Yes. Mm. I, I enjoyed it, but it would never be an acceptable uh, from a controllability uh, with the, the standards which are set now. Um, I enjoyed flying the Hurricane. It was a lovely airplane to fly um, because it was such a safe airplane. It did what you do. You could put it down anywhere. Uh, I enjoyed flying the Typhoon by the time we finished developing it and had this marvellous bubble hood on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we the Typhoon, we started off with the worst view of any aeroplane which had ever been designed and finished off with the best view of any aeroplane which had mm -hmm. ever been designed with the bubble hood which is now on every aeroplane, even yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a difficult question mm -hmm. to answer. You were mentioning just now the, the, the fuselage structural problem you had on the tornado, and you said you would come We had no structural problems on the tornado, we only had one or two. Yeah. We had, we had uh, no structural problems on the typhoon. 
you, I presume, are referring to an incident which I had. Mm. Uh, that was nothing to do with structural strength. It was pure f lateral um, uh, lateral stability, not lateral stability, um, um, directional stability. Purely directional stability. Uh, we were uh, we were always uh, hawkers not to be quoted. Oh, Sydney Cam, and mm. don't quote me. No, it is on. I'll turn it off for a second. <laughs> yes. Now your remark about the, the small fins, I mean I, I've gone into this in a, in, in a lot of detail because the Roly Beam one first brought this up on, on inertial coupling. Yes. The problem they had in America yes, with the F-100. Yes. Which I've got, again I've gone into detail, detail with Dick, Dick Johnson who tells yes. us a lot about it. And, and you very often you see if you if you've got um, you've got instability, directional instability, you very often change the trim as well. Mm. You get to change mm. the trim as well. Mm. And that led to this. Yes. Well, I'm very sorry. Yeah. Yeah, of course, we had a lot of structural trouble on the typhoon. Mm. We had 28 tails off. Mm. I, I'm crazy. Of course, we had it. Uh, and uh, we were. This was a matter of very great concern because. Um, we, and I lost one of my pilots, a fellow named Kenneth Smith. The whole box tail section broke off like a carrot mm. at the transport joint where the tail joint on the fuselage and we had 28 off and uh, it wasn't until the about the 27th where we had a pilot who survived and was able to who not the tail didn't come off we didn't know why it came off we knew we we mounted uh, a research program which in those days was almost equal to what was done on the comet when they disappeared. We had a tremendous test program set up uh, of trying different diving actors, um, dive, uh, divergent um, tests on, on while we were diving, you know, by um, uh, pulling the aircraft out of different G's, um, moving the rudder backwards and forwards so we could get all the various conditions, and we were never able to produce it at, at Langley. Um, and yet the tails kept on coming off. We knew, for instance, there were cases where there were flights of three aircraft flying at comparatively low speeds, when I'm talking about low, probably around about 350 miles an hour, or even less, where the tail would suddenly come off and the would bunt and the pilot was killed. Um, and it happened over and over again, and we spent our whole time charging around the countryside, picking up the bits. I kind of said, I forgot this. And, um, and it wasn't until about the week before D-Day, oh incidentally I should say, needless to say, we all our all our engineers, we had technical representatives on each aerodrome uh, looking after the machines. Everybody did, of course. And they had very definite instructions that any incident was to be immediately reported to me personally. And um, the week before D-Day, all the typhoon wings 
were down in the Bournemouth area. And they were, spent the whole time um, bombing, rocketing, machine gunning radar sites along the Normandy coast. And about 11 o'clock one night, the telephone went, and it was one of our chaps at Hearn Airport, and said, look, he said, I think we've got a clue. Um, I can't go into details, but I'm in a pub, and there's a sergeant pilot here who obviously had something funny happened, but mm. we can't find anything wrong with the airplane. I said, right, I'll be down the next day, and I flew down the next day, I looked at the airplane, couldn't find anything wrong. Flew it, couldn't find anything wrong. But talked to the pilot, and he said, well, he said, uh, you see, most of these pilots were terribly inexperienced. Mm. They weren't engineers even. Mm. You know, there were any profession you like to think of, you name it. Mm. They came from all broad sections of industry and society. And so they couldn't describe what happened. But something funny, he said, I was diving the ground and he said, uh, soon as I'd finished firing my rockets off, I was firing my guns and I pulled out of the dive and all of a sudden the stick was flying about all over the cockpit, you see. And um, by that time I'd pulled out of my dive and, uh, and everything was all right. And he treated it as a, as a joke. And I mean, I think if he hadn't been a bit alcoholic, he probably wouldn't have told it to our rep. So this was immediately reported to the people who were investigating the accidents. And the aircraft was dismantled and taken to Farnborough. And the Farnborough people uh, vibrated the airplane. And they found the, the natural frequency of the aircraft and that there was a node exactly opposite where the mass balance of the elevators were inside the fuselage. And they obviously it was tailplane flutter. Now all the flutter experts had been into it and they said, oh no, it's not flutter. It didn't, can't be flutter. And we kept on strengthening up, we strengthened the tailplane spar, we strengthened up the, the um, straps joining the, mm. uh, the draw the transport section. All sorts of marks we added with our tongues in our cheeks. Uh, but we had to be shown to do something. And, um, but every time we did a mod, a strengthening mod, it happened again. Mm -hmm. And it was traced to flutter. We had uh, elevator mass balance was a remote mass balance mm -hmm. operated by a series of linkages installed in the fuselage. Uh -huh. And it had, I can't remember the exact weight, but I think I'm right in saying that it had a six pound weight on the end of an arm. Mm -hmm through linkages to the elevators. They changed that weight from six pounds to eight pounds. We never had another tailor. Now that took probably a couple of years to find yes. out yes. because everybody was killed. Yeah. And it's very unnerving, I might tell yeah. you, for our, our test pilots having to try to reproduce it. And we had one chap killed. Incredible. And that, so the, the situation would arise where the natural frequency, natural frequency of the fuselage... Yes, a set of combinations. You couldn't tell uh, a combination of speed, net out speed, yeah. temperature, 
hitting a bump like that and yeah. start triggering it off. And the thing that came off like that. It's the same thing as soldiers marching in step over a bridge, I suppose. That's you right. You get it and Absolutely. then Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How fascinating. But this, of course, was nothing to do with your accident. Nothing to no, do with it. No, no. It was purely in the direction of Mr. Bird. Mm, mm, I would mm. increase the thin area yes. and the run area and never had trouble. Yes. 